You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious God of truth, we pray that you would open your word to our hearts this morning so that we may see the treasures of Christ and of your grace in them, in your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to obey your word and open our eyes that we may see all that is necessary for us this morning. Help us to live in light of your truth, and we pray that you would quicken our hearts to serve you and to honor you today. In Christ's name, amen. I've been promising you throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that there were positive things coming, that there was light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, this was not all dark and foreboding and depressing and discouraging, and we have now come to the point of the book of Ecclesiastes at the very end. This is the last message in the book of Ecclesiastes. See, that was the, up, that was the positive thing right there. That was it. <clears throat> you have endured to the end. You have persevered all the way to the end of this book, and you deserve a prize of some sort. I have nothing for you, and I realized this last week that if I were to give you a prize for enduring through the end of Ecclesiastes, it would just be meaningless anyway. You would, you would die and end up handing it off to somebody else, and who knows whether you'd be a wise man or a fool. And then you and the prize and the fact that you endured to the end of Ecclesiastes would all be forgotten and buried in the sands of time and nobody would ever remember what we did. So there would be really no point. And maybe the end of Ecclesiastes getting to the end is the reward in itself. Then you can just say, we got to the end of it. Now, if you are here and you have been here for a long time, in other words, if you were here the first time we went through Ecclesiastes 20 years ago, and so you have endured it twice, then you deserve an extra special reward which would also be buried near the sands of time. And if you were here back when we went through Ecclesiastes the first time and you don't remember that, then you deserve nothing. In fact, this whole trip through Ecclesiastes should serve as a punishment for you for just going through it once and never remembering the lesson of Ecclesiastes. So we've come to the end of it. This is our last sermon in Ecclesiastes. We're looking at 9 verses 9 through 14 of chapter 12. And this is kind of a larger chunk of, of the text, uh, maybe a little bit larger than we're used to. And it's not that I'm anxious to get out of the book, but I know that you are, so we're going to get through the whole thing today. In these verses, these verses actually, we have been, been making our way through Ecclesiastes, looking forward to these verses, not that we're anticipating being done with it, but I mean we have had that at the beginning or the forefront of everything that we have said. We've been anticipating this passage as we've worked our way through the book because periodically I have reminded you of where Solomon is taking us. As we have traveled down this road in, in Ecclesiastes, this journey that he is taking us on, I have been reminding you all the way through it. The point of this is that we would fear God and keep his commandments. That's why the book is written. That's the end of the whole thing. It's the conclusion of the whole matter. It's the, the whole duty of man. So we have been looking forward to, in the sense of anticipating and kind of keeping that in the forefront of our mind as we have worked through each and every text. So now we come to the end where that has been stated clearly. And it's kind of like in the Gospel of John where you go through the entire Gospel of John, then you get to the end, and John finally says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You get the purpose statement at the end of the book of John instead of at the beginning of the book of John. It's the same in Ecclesiastes. We come to the end, and now we finally find out what the point is that Solomon has been trying to make all the way through the entire book. So we're looking at verses 9 through 14. 
We, will, we read them in the scripture reading, but let's read them again together. Verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. This passage begins with a, sort of a change in voice. And did you notice that the, as you read verses 9 through the end of the chapter, it kind of feels like we're talking about something that is from a bit of a different perspective. It's almost as if Solomon has stepped out of the character that inhabited the first 12 verse, uh, chapters of the book. It it's kind of feels like it's written by somebody else. It feels like it's dis, different in its tone and different in its tension, as if it is a bit of a different voice. And Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary in Ecclesiastes said that tip, typically people People, when they get to this portion of Ecclesiastes, make one of two mistakes. And here are the two mistakes. The first is to view these verses as if they have been written by somebody else. And this person that people typically think wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, when, and I mentioned earlier in the book that some people say that Solomon didn't write this, and I've argued throughout that Solomon wrote the entire book, and I've been making that case throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Some people say that Solomon didn't write the book, but that somebody else wrote it, and that and that what the person who wrote it is what's called a frame narrator. So he begins the book back in chapter 1, verse 1, with these words, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, quote, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the rest of, chap all the way, the rest of the book through chapter 12, verse 8, is all a quotation of what the preacher said. So you get to chapter 12, verse 8, and it says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And then it is as if having quoted the preacher, Solomon, he steps out of that and then begins to refer to the preacher, you'll notice, in the past tense. The, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So he's talking about the preacher in the past tense and as a third person. So some people say this frame narrator is simply quoting Solomon or he is taking on the persona of Solomon and trying to teach this lesson. And Solomon really didn't write the book. The frame narrator wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And I would suggest that that is not the way that we ought to view the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it was Solomon who wrote it. In fact, I think it is Solomon who is, is now stepping back from what he has written, and he is saying, having written this, I, the preacher, and he is speaking of himself in the third person, I, the preacher, have this to say about what I have just written. This is Solomon's honest assessment of what he wrote in the book. So Solomon himself is speaking of himself in the third person in verses 9 through 14. And he is giving us his perspective on what he has written, and he is giving us the conclusion of the whole matter. As if having written this and observed this and studied this, pondered it and arranged it nicely, he's written all of this out. And then Solomon is stepping back and saying, Now I, the preacher, in addition to being a wise man, I taught the people, and here's how I wrote Ecclesiastes, here's why I wrote Ecclesiastes, and here's the meaning of Ecclesiastes. It's Solomon's commentary on this book. Um, we typically, it sounds odd to us to hear somebody speak in the third person, doesn't it? 
Like if Jim Osmond got up here and started speaking to you in the third person, you'd say, this is horrible, I can't listen to this, I can't endure that anymore. But in ancient times, it wasn't like that. It was not atypical for people to speak of themselves in the third person. Jesus did this all the time with the term Son of Man. It was the most common way that Jesus referred to himself. You will see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. You will see the Son of Man returning in the clouds of glory. Uh, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and will suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. And on the third day, he will rise again. Jesus referred to himself in the third person all of the time. And I think that this is what Solomon is doing here. He is describing himself in the third person. He's describing himself in the past tense. But this is like an about the author at the end of the book. Now, in my books that I wrote, I wrote the about the author section. Nobody would read my book and say, well, see, the, about the author. I mean, here's, here's he's describing this about the author section. That was me trying to give an honest assessment of who I am at the very end of the book. I think Solomon is doing the same thing here in verses 9 to 14. So that's the first mistake that people make. The second mistake that people make when they come to these verses after presuming that somebody else wrote them, is to suggest that verses 9 through 14 is a corrective to everything that has come before it. As if, as if the, the, the person writing verses 9 to 14 is stepping back and saying, now listen, everything that Koaleth has said, everything that the preacher has said in this book, disregard all of it. The point of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. As if this is the orthodox correction for everything in the first part of the book. And I don't think that that's the right way of viewing this. Again, I don't think that he is trying to give us something contrary to the lesson of Ecclesiastes in this passage. The lesson of Ecclesiastes is this, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the point of the whole book. That is, in fact, everything that Solomon has been arguing about for the entire book, that our goal of our existence is to fear God and keep his commandments, to obey him because this is the responsibility of every man. And there is a judgment to come. That is the message of Ecclesiastes. Now one thing, and I don't know where else to put this in the sermon, other than just to drop it in here, completely out of place, like it doesn't even belong. But one thing that I've been asked periodically as we've been going through this is, do you think that Solomon repented at the end of his life? In other words, do you think that you will see Solomon in heaven? Now in all of the commentaries that I have read on this book, there's always in the beginning of it that the author will usually try and address this issue. Is the book of Ecclesiastes the confessions of a penitent man or is Ecclesiastes the rantings of a cynical man? Is it the confessions of a penitent man or the rantings of a cynical man? If it's the confessions of a penitent man, that means that Solomon, at the end of his life, having realized that he walked away from the Lord and his heart was not obedient to the Lord his God, having made all of those mistakes and accumulated wives and wealth and pursued all of the vanities that we see in Ecclesiastes, he gets to the end and he finally confesses, look, I have messed it all up. I, this is, I have been wrong. I have turned from it and repented of it. You ought to fear God and keep his commandments. And he's trying to keep us from making the same mistake. That would be Solomon the penitent. Or some people say that having pursued this, in, in this injurious course of lifestyle all the way through the book and come to the conclusion that everything is vanity, that Solomon himself never repented. And so, verses 9 to 14, is the writing of somebody else trying to point us to the lesson of a man's failed life. Okay, There's two different views on that. Now, do I think that I'll see Solomon in heaven? Do I think that Solomon repented? Is this the, the rantings of a cynical man or the confessions of a penitent man? I don't know the answer to that question. And I go back and forth. It depends on whether you ask me on Monday or Friday or every other Saturday or a holiday what I feel about Solomon in this. I honestly cannot say that I am convinced either way. I could give you the arguments for both. In fact, people who make the argument that this is the confessions of a penitent man 
would point to verses 9 to 4 as Solomon's writing and say, see what he's doing? He's, he's pointing us back to God. This is, this is a man who has returned to God and has come to realize that fearing God and obeying him is the path to life. Well, my argument against that would be that it is possible that this is not the, this is not the product of Solomon's penitence, but the product of Solomon's self-centered remorse. In other words, there is a difference between realizing that my sin has harmed me and me realizing that my sin is an offense to God. You could say verses 9 to 14 in Solomon's stead. Solomon could have written that even as a cynical, impenitent individual who was far away from God. He could have written those words, and it would have taken on this sense, look, I've made a lot of mistakes. Don't do what I did. It's painful. It's injurious. It's a hard life. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, you say, that, that sounds like a penitent man. No. No, it just sounds like a man who's learned the hard lessons of life. He's just not denying reality. He's just simply saying, I've made mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes. It's possible that Solomon could have got to the end of his life and still, without turning to the Lord, have said, this is the, this is the path to life. So do this, be this, live this way, but still be hardened in his heart against God and still be impenitent. Other individuals would say that this is Solomon being the cynic, and I would, could agree with that. I think one of the arguments for the fact that Solomon never repented is that if you read through the passages that deal with Solomon's life, 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11 and his reign, there is the mention that Solomon acquired all of these women, that he built temples to foreign gods, that he lived in disobedience to the Lord, but there's no mention in any of the biographical details about Solomon that there's no mention that he ever repented or turned back to the Lord. No mention of that. In spite of the fact that the author of those very same books... 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. The authors of those same books are always good about telling us of the repentance of kings of Israel who went the wrong way and then turned around at the end. Those authors mentioned those when those kings actually repented. But one of the very last things that we read about Solomon is that he was trying to kill somebody because God made a prophecy about that individual and Solomon was trying to kill that individual to keep that prophecy from coming to pass and then he died. Does that sound like the actions of a penitent man? No, that's right. That's right. No, those aren't the actions of a penitent man. I'm glad she didn't say yes. So that would be my, that would be my argument against the idea that Solomon repented. So are we going to see Solomon in heaven? I honestly have no idea. I have no idea. But that doesn't keep us from learning the lesson of what Solomon is saying here because I think that he, has, he, he came to understand what was true and he came to understand what God requires of us and he can state that clearly, even if in this passage he himself didn't believe that fully. All right, so beginning in verse 9, we'll look, we've looked first of all at the things that Solomon has said throughout the entire book, chapter 1, 1 through chapter 12, verse 8. Now we're going to look at how it is that Solomon said it. Beginning in verse 9, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. Uh, Solomon was a, what, would, what would be called a wise man. God had given him wisdom at the beginning of his life. He didn't, didn't live up to that wisdom. He failed to obey that wisdom and to apply that wisdom. So he was very renowned for his wisdom throughout his, his reign. The man knew things, and he had wisdom as a gift from God, but Solomon didn't live up to that. And so we would call him a wise man, and he did arrange most of the book of Proverbs. Most of the book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, and, of course, Ecclesiastes, which is wisdom literature. So he was a sage in the land of Israel, and he was a man who desired to teach the people wisdom and knowledge. You see that in verse 9. He was not only a wise man, the preacher taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. And I think here he is describing how it is that he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Solomon, having wisdom, having knowledge, desiring to teach other people that same wisdom and knowledge, he arranged and searched and pondered Proverbs. He arranged those, put them into the book of Proverbs. And this also describes the book of Ecclesiastes, most specifically. He arranged and pondered out and searched out the Proverbs and wrote Ecclesiastes. And, and this describes his studious nature. This was how Solomon viewed his task. His task as the sage of Israel was to understand truth, to ponder it, to search it out, to examine it, to study it, and this itself is wearying to the body. And then he arranged the many Proverbs that we find in the book of Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. And then look at verse 10. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. There are three things here that he mentions about how he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Number one, he studied. Second, he took the results of his study and he organized them, arranged them, and sought to communicate them in a beautiful fashion. And we see this in Ecclesiastes. This is a beautiful book. And, it is, and, and considering how it is arranged, the way that he has arranged the book of Proverbs, there is a rational, logical, and theological framework to the book of Ecclesiastes. It is well thought out. This, this book is not just a rambling, incoherent con stream of consciousness. Not something that you would uh, get from somebody who's just sitting down and writing out whatever comes to their mind. There's a structure to this book that is beautiful. Now, it is discouraging. It, it can be depressing. But listen, part of the discouraging and the depressing nature of Ecclesiastes, part of that point is to drive us to this conclusion. So it, it is beautifully arranged. Tom Wolfe, who is an American um, author, he said that Ecclesiastes is, quote, the highest flower of poetic eloquence and truth, close quote. He also said this of Ecclesiastes, it is the greatest single piece of writing I have known. The beauty of this book is hard to deny. Now, you may not like it. It may not be enjoyable to go through this but the beauty of it is hard to deny. Solomon, Solomon has purposefully in a very systematic and rational and studied fashion arranged all of Ecclesiastes so that it might make a rational and reasonable argument. And that argument concludes in verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commandments because this is the whole duty of man. And then having pondered it and searched it out and thought about it and, and studied out those truths, he found a way to try and communicate it in a beautiful words. He sought to find, verse 10 says, delightful words, beautiful words. To put it in a, in a memorable and impactful fashion. So we read in Ecclesiastes things like, to everything there is a season. We read things like, no man knows his time. We read things like, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in our hearts. Cast your bread upon the waters. This is beautiful and poetic language. And it, not only in its structure is it beautiful, but in the wording of Ecclesiastes it is beautiful. So he studied it out. He sought to make it delightful or easy to hear. And then the third thing is he wrote, sought to write this out truthfully, verse 10, to write words of truth correctly. This is Solomon's assessment of Ecclesiastes. I have studied these things. I have tried to communicate it beautifully. And then I have written it accurately as to exactly what it is that you ought to learn. Now, I'll just pause here for a second to, to remind all of us in this congregation who have a responsibility of preaching and teaching that these three things are what preachers are called to do. To study diligently the text and to know your material. Now, contrast that with the individual who steps into the pulpit and you start to wonder if he even exposed himself to his material prior to Saturday night sometime late. And you're not quite sure that he even knows the text or anything about the text or even where the text is going or the purpose in the, of the whole book or even who wrote the material. He just hasn't studied it. He hasn't thought it through. He, he hasn't really digested it for himself. And so he stands up in front of the pulpit and gives to you everybody else's thoughts on this and, and uh, just regurgitates what other people have written. And you get the impression right out of the gate that he, he really is out of his depth in this material. He doesn't actually know this text at all. 
Second thing Solomon sought to do is not only to study it and to know it and to become a master of that material, but the second thing was to find a delightful and engaging way of communicating it. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It is beautiful words, beautifully written, beautifully articulated to make a point, and it is easy and impactful to understand it and to hear it. That is the second responsibility of a teacher or a preacher. Not just to stand up and fumble your way through it, but to do the work of finding an articulate and clear way of communicating something to make it clear and to make it easy to listen to. And the third thing was to speak the truth correctly. Contrast that with the individual who stands in front of the people of God. He doesn't speak the truth correctly. He avoids the truth. He, he doesn't like the uncomfortable things. He doesn't like discussing things that might offend anybody. And so he just dances around the truth all the time, trying to be beautiful and articulate it. And to get, at the end, you get to it and you say, I'm not sure what I learned there. I'm not sure what that, I'm not even sure that was true, but man, it was beautiful. Man, it sounded great. Man, it was fun to listen to. They tickle your ears, but keep you far from the truth. Solomon says the three things that he tried to do as a preacher, and this makes him a preacher extraordinaire to master the material, to master the delivery, and then to state the truth plainly. And that is, I think, the best description of Ecclesiastes. That is why when we get to the, the end of this book, the whole point of it hits home for us. So we, now we read in verses 11 and 12, not only what Solomon did and how he communicated it, but now we read what it is that, why it is that he wrote it the way that he did. Verse 11, the words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. And the question is, what are the well-driven nails, and what is this analogy intended to communicate? I think this describes why it is that Solomon wrote what he did. There are two analogies that you'll see there, goads and well-driven nails. A goad you're probably familiar with, it was a stick with a point at the end of it, sometimes a metal point or a nail at the end of it, or something that they would use to prod animals to get them to go in a certain direction. And when the animal was going the wrong direction, they would take a goad and, and poke the animal, and it was intended to move the animal in the direction that they wanted to go. This is how Solomon describes this book. The truth, the words of the wise man are like goads. They, that is, they sting, they cause pain. And so as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, this is what we find, isn't it? You say to yourself, I think I'll pursue a godless life of sensual pleasure. Well, Solomon would take that goat and jab it right in your side and say, look, that's vanity. That's vanity. I tried that. I had concubines and women and wine, and I didn't deny any pleasure that came into my mind. I gave myself wholly to it. You get to the end of it, and it's purposeless. Or you might say, well, I think I will, desire, I will pursue a godless course of hedonism and self-sufficiency and, and, and self-pursuit of my own goals and my own desires and dreams. And Solomon would take that goat and jam it right into your side and say, I tried that. I went that direction. I built all of these things that I wanted to build. I had parks and gardens and, and lands and houses and temples. I had all of it. Or you might say, I, I would pursue wisdom, thinking that is the highest pursuit of man, and pursue wisdom in the exclusion of God. And Solomon would take the goat of Ecclesiastes and jab you right in the side of it and say, I tried that, there's no answer in wisdom either. And all the way through this book, have we not found that he, having analyzed every godless philosophical pursuit, every godless way of thinking, every godless lifestyle, we come to the end of every one of them and we find that it is pain, isn't it? Painful. That's what makes the book of Ecclesiastes so painful in the end. Because it's like a goat and it just jabs us. You want to pursue life this way? Then prepare for pain. You want to pursue thinking this way? Prepare for pain. There is pain at the end of every godless pursuit. And so Ecclesiastes is like a goat. It jabs us in the side and it drives us into the correct path. The second thing it does is not only sting us, but it stabilizes us. And this is the point behind the analogy of well-driven nails. 
A nail driven well into a piece of wood or a board or a tree or something is immovable. It's stabilizing. It has a, a stabilizing effect that makes something fixed in a position. And this is what the Word of God does. The Word of God not only reproves us, the Word of God makes us stable and able and solid so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Like the words of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. When the law of the Lord, when the word of God is your meditation day and night, and you are a master of that collection, you have mastered the message of Ecclesiastes, you have mastered the wisdom of Proverbs, you have mastered the text of Scripture, when you become grounded in that, you are like a tree planted by rivers of water. Everything you do flourishes. You're not like the chaff which is driven by the wind. You're not like a, chill, a child tossed back and forth by every novelty and every, every fad that rushes through the church and Christianity, every poorly written book articulated by some false teacher. You don't fall prey to that. Why? Because you are grounded and stable in the truth. Masters of these collections, masters of the truth, are like well-driven nails. They're rock solid. You show me somebody who, who havers back and forth between opinions and back and forth between theologies. And they have no foundation under them whatsoever. They're not masters of truth. They're not masters of Scripture. One of the blessings of Scripture is that when we are grounded in it, it, it grounds us in the truth. It stings us so that we are on the right path, and it stabilizes us so that we are not moved away from the truth. That's the blessing of the Word of God. That's what Solomon is describing here. The words of the wise are like goads, and masters of them are like well-driven nails. They're given by one shepherd. That describes their source. Is the one shepherd there referring to Solomon, or is it referring to wisdom teachers in general? I think it is referring to God. He is the good shepherd of Israel. In Psalm 23, it says that. Psalm 80, verse 1 says, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. God was the one who was the shepherd of Israel. I think in this one statement, Solomon is describing here uh, really a doctrine in a primitive one of sorts, a doctrine of divine inspiration, that though he himself searched and pondered and wrote it out beautifully and communicated words of truth accurately in writing it, Solomon recognized that what he had written was authoritative scripture. It ultimately is given by one shepherd. The word of God is the product of both men and it is the product of God. This book, all 66 books of, of this Bible, are written to us, and they are the product, they are the blessing of one shepherd. The shepherd of Israel has given us this book. Now you say, and I think that this is the point of verse 12, which kind of doesn't make sense unless you read it in light of that. Verse 12 says, but beyond this, my son, beyond what? What is given to us by one shepherd? This book is, right? That which has been searched out and pondered and, and written beautifully and articulated, Solomon says, all of this, the wisdom, the masters of wisdom, the collection of wisdom, this collection of wisdom is given to us by one who is the shepherd of Israel. But beyond this, beyond this book, what? Verse 12, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. In other words, men can write books all day long. And they do. And to the writing of those books, there is no end. It just goes on and on and on. Every year, 600,000 to 1 million books are published every year in the United States alone. 600,000 to a million books. Do you realize that it is impossible for one of us, any one of us, to keep up with even 1% of what is written in our nation? That's amazing, isn't it? What would Solomon, Solomon said this before the printing press was invented. 
Solomon said this back when, when writing a book would take a long time and you had to write it by hand and, and copying was all by hand and collections of books were, was very difficult to come by and books were very expensive. But today, I could write total garbage and have it published for nothing because you can self-publish stuff nowadays, right? So you can just publish something for free. 600,000 to a million books every year are published. What would Solomon say today? The writing of many books is endless. It just goes on and on. To keep up with a million books a year, you'd have to read, well, to keep up with 1% of a million books a year, you'd have to read 27 books a day. Now, if you love books, you, what are you thinking? You're thinking, man, I get 26 books behind every day that I live. I fall further and further behind. That's exactly right. The Library of Congress has six, oh, I had the statistic in my head. What was it? 16 million. I was going to say 6 million. 16 million books in the Library of Congress. I started off with 6,400 books, which was bought from Thomas Jefferson. I thought, I thought 6,400 books was kind of a, I don't know, a sort of mediocre amount. And then I counted up my own books in my own library. I have 1,200 books in my library, going on 1,300 books, actually. And I think I have a lot of books in my personal library. I don't have, I mean, I'm surprised at how small of a number that is, given how many Thomas Jefferson had. He had 6,500 books in his library. Now today there's 16 million copies and 16 million books in the Library of Congress. Do you get, the, do you get the, the sense that men just churn out drivel constantly? Right? Just there's this never-ending parade of books and material and articles and blog posts that are posted each and every day. There's no end to it. And what is Solomon saying? The, the devotion to those things is wearying to the body. It is taxing. Why? Because it is the words of men. There is a book that is given to us by one shepherd. Beyond that, the writing of books is endless. It's just endless nonsense and endless talking and endless drivel. And I say that about my own books. It's just, it's all, it's all drivel and nonsense and it just goes on and on forever. But this book is given to us by one shepherd. That's the source of scripture. Now look at the conclusion of the whole matter, verse 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Now have we heard it all? Everything from chapter 1, verse 1. What is the conclusion of it all? What is the point that we are to dry, walk away from this book with? Verse 13, when it all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this applies to every man. What does it mean to fear God? Solomon's not talking about a craven fear, a cowardly fear, where, where as believers we tremble before God and we're terrified like we might be terrified of the dark or terrified of heights or something like that. He's talking about a reverential awe and respect. When, when we talk about a believer fearing God, we're talking about giving to God the honor, the worship, the reverence that he is due, living in an appropriate humility before him, recognizing how great he is. See, a believer fears God because he knows God. He knows God's love. He knows God's mercy. He knows God's grace. He knows God's redeeming power. He knows the, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. And so a believer is happy to bow the knee before King Jesus and to live in reverential awe of such a great and awesome God. The unbeliever fears God as well, but the unbeliever should fear God for an entirely different reason. The unbeliever should fear God because he doesn't know God. Because he doesn't know God, and therefore he doesn't have the righteousness of God, he doesn't have his sins forgiven, and he lives under the wrath of God, aware of his guilt at all times. And that fear of God that we have will lead to something. It will lead to an obedience to God. We are to fear God and to keep his commandments. And these two things go together. And this is what wisdom is. Wisdom is living in the fear of God in obedience to the word of God. But the one who does not know God and does not fear God will not obey God. Show me somebody who lives in disobedience before God and I will show you somebody who has no fear of God. He has no appropriate fear of God. 
But our fear of God, our reverential awe and love for God ought to stir within us a desire to obey Him. So because we know Him, we want to obey Him. We want to gladly submit to His Lordship and to His Kingship and to walk in humility and obedience before Him because we have a proper reverential awe of this great and awesome God that we serve. And the unbeliever fears God because he has not obeyed God. And that's an appropriate fear as well. And the unbeliever fears God, he has not obeyed God, and he has not kept his commandments. And so there is a judgment to come, which verse 14 describes. In verse 13, when Solomon says this applies to every man, you'll see that there's a difference in translation there, depending on your translation, because that phrase could be used to say that this command to fear God and live in obedience to his commandments this applies to all of humanity universally. It could be used to describe that. It could be to say that this is the duty of all men universally. Or it could be translated, this is all of the duty of man himself. In other words, take your individual duty, what is your duty before God, the totality, sum it all to up, put it all together, and what does it boil down to? Fear God and keep his commandments. That is all that God has given to you. That is the sum total of your life. Your duty, your responsibility, your goal, your purpose in living is to fear God and keep His commandments. So it can, be, it can be used to describe both things. It is true that all men have this responsibility. And those who perish everlastingly on the day of judgment will perish because they did not fear God and they did not keep His commandments. And that is to say that all of us who are saved on the day of judgment, who have Christ as our righteousness, we fear God and we keep His commandments because this is what God has given to us to do. And we joyfully submit to that call. We joyfully submit to that demand. So we fear him, we keep his commandments, because this is why we are here. This is why he has created us. So verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. And this certainty of a judgment to come is something that we cannot escape. Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed and he has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The judge on that final day is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says there is a fixed day upon which God will judge the world. Solomon was aware that not only is there a God, but there is also a judgment. And ultimately, this is the point of Ecclesiastes. Because there is a God, there is a judgment to come. And because there is a judgment to come, this world is not meaningless. Now, if there is no God, then there is no judgment to come. And if there is no judgment to come, then everything is vain. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. This is the point of Ecclesiastes. You cannot be an intellectually consistent atheist. If you believe that there is no God, then there is no judgment. And if there is no judgment, then nothing matters. Rape doesn't matter. Genocide doesn't matter. Child abuse doesn't matter. Pedophiles don't matter. Pornography doesn't matter. Murder doesn't matter. Me stealing your stuff, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. And you... you you can't even say that any of that stuff is wrong or morally offensive or evil in any way. If there is not God, those things don't matter. Those things aren't wrong. You may prefer that I don't steal things from you, but you can't say that it's wrong. All you can say is that you don't prefer it. You can't make any moral statements about anything specifically or objective, objectively true if, in fact, there is no God. If there's no judgment, then me stealing from you doesn't matter. You might not like it, but hey, it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Survival of the fittest. If you were fitter, you would keep me from stealing your stuff. So I'm just going to steal your stuff because I'm stronger than you. And genocide doesn't matter. Rape doesn't matter. Nothing matters. If there's no judgment, then you and I are just organized blobs of tissue hustling about on an ordinary rock revolving around a star in a vast, empty universe that's cold and dark and will eventually die a heat death all by itself. 
And there's no life to come. And there's no judgment to come. All is vanity. All is meaningless. But if there is a God, then there is a judgment. And if there is a judgment, then nothing is meaningless. Not even the smallest of things. Look what Solomon says at the end of verse 14. Everything which is hidden, every secret thought, every motive, every deed done in darkness, every act of injustice, every violation of his law, every idle word that is spoken, there is no such thing as anything that is meaningless if there is a judgment to come. This should terrify the unbeliever. This should terrify the atheist. It should terrify the one who, who does not stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ on that final day. Because you have to understand, if you are in that stead, that you will stand before God and that He is the judge and that no secret thought, no activity you have ever done will be overlooked. He will vet you and He will vet you thoroughly. Everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done, everything you have ever said, everything you have ever wanted to do but did not do will be examined on that day. And you will find that you have committed tens of thousands of crimes against a benevolent and holy God who has loved you and done nothing but lavish his goodness upon you. And you have violated his law by, by lusting, by lying, by blaspheming, by coveting, by dishonoring your parents, by hating people, by serving other gods, by going your own way, by serving yourself, and every last violation of his law will be accounted for. That ought to terrify you if you are an unbeliever. God offers you clemency. He offers you salvation. He offers you redemption and forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ who came to this earth and he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death in your stead. He paid the penalty that you deserve so that you could be free on the day of judgment. And God demands of you repentance and faith. And if you will not repent and you will not believe, then you will face the judgment that is described in verse 14. Every hidden thing will be revealed. If there is a God, there is a judgment. And if there is a judgment, then everything matters. Now, all the way through Ecclesiastes, we've been reading that it's all vanity, that none of it matters, because Solomon has been describing life from a godless perspective. And that's true. If there's no God, then none of it matters. Your life is useless. Why are, you, why are you getting education? Why do you suffer? Why do you endure illness? Why do you do anything? It's just utter uselessness if there is no God. It's vanity. But if there is a God, there is a judgment. And if there's a judgment, and it's not nothing that matters, everything matters. Every hidden and secret thing. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every act of judgment, including every secret thing, every hidden thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. So the message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters. The message of Ecclesiastes is that everything matters. Because there is a God and because there is a judgment. Let's bow our heads. Merciful and gracious God, we are so thankful for the truth that you give us in Scripture. Because you exist and because there is a judgment and because Christ has lived and died and rose again, risen from the grave, everything in our life takes on new significance and new meaning because of what you have done to deliver us from this empty and vain world, this world that is characterized by death and destruction. Because of that, you will receive glory forevermore. Because of what Christ has done, we can have eternal life and we can have our sins forgiven and we thank you for that. And we pray that you would quicken the hearts of any who are here who do not believe who have not trusted Christ, and make them to see their desperate need for a Savior, even today. We pray that you would draw them to yourself and to your Son, that you may receive the full reward for his suffering, and that you may be glorified by your people, both now and forevermore. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.